You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, David. Hello, Bob. How you doing? Indifferently well. That's not a bad way to be. Indifferent is better than uh, about 50% of the alternatives. Um, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are David Ottlinger. Uh, I don't know. Would we describe you as a freelance philosopher? Is that freelance writer? I, I'm a little. I'm a. I'm a little iffy about claiming the mantle of philosopher. My background's in philosophy, is what I always like to say. Mm-hmm. But I definitely come at things from a philosophical perspective. Mm-hmm. So I'm and a freelance, you, whatever that is. And you do know a lot, an inordinate amount, about Immanuel Kant, do you not? <sighs> You could say that. More, um, than is, always... more than is healthy. At, at the very minimum, we can say that. <laughs> but there's so much deeper you can go. I mean, it's amazing. The the way the Kant literature is just drinking from a fire hose. Where I to I You mean you mean because I, they're writing so much about him now? Or do you mean his own writing? Oh yeah. No, what what's being written on Kant is uh-huh. is massive and it's just um when I was working on something on Kant, a professor once told me, don't worry about thinking, has somebody said this before? Of course they have. Mm-hmm. Um, just work so that when you discover that that other version, the person who had the thought before you, that it's as best a version, that your version can sit alongside it. Right. Um, because it's just, you can't, and it's even people talk about it in the literature that like um, somebody said that a book, a book that was supposed to be about Kant was about books that are about Kant. <laughs> and, you know, it, you can get lost in the literature um, and end up kind of missing mm-hmm. the man himself. Part of but, that sounds yeah. just like life on the Internet. I mean, of course, whatever you're about to say has been said by somebody somewhere. <laughs> you have to let go of that problem. Um, but it's it. But it's this is somebody said it, and it's been peer reviewed and edited and published in a scholarly journal. So, well, that's a time saver. <laughs> yeah, from well, your point of view, it, see, it you can just go ahead and publish. You can just go ahead and publish and skip all that because it's been vetted. Um, so yeah. let me explain what we're going to talk about. My appetite for this conversation was whetted by a conversation that you had with Dan Kaufman several years ago about Kant on his show, Sophia. Um, Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, people can now find that show uh, on the Electric Agora, Mm -hmm. new home for the show. It's a home he's been building a long time. It it has long been a place you can find uh, very good writing about philosophy. And maybe there was the, I don't know if there were videos and audio stuff, but but now uh, the show Sophia is going to be headquartered there um so people can just google electric agora a-g-o-r-a i'm not even sure that's the correct pronunciation but but in any event is that like a square in ancient athens or something where philosophers hung out what is an agora yeah the agora is the center marketplace it was very much the center of public life and um philosophers uh met there and spoke to people and the the Stoa, for which Stoics are named, uh, mm-hmm. was a port, a particular porch, 
mm-hmm. uh, which they're they were just known as the people who hung out on the stoa, which is all mm. stoic means. Mm. Um, yeah, it was a much more communal life in the ancient world. So the <laughs> kind of the, I always point out that people thought, I think it's Julius Caesar was strange because he read silently. Really? So it was more mm-hmm. common to, uh, to read out loud, I take it. I think I can. I mean, even that. through the Middle Ages, reading was mostly public. Hmm. Um, this kind of the kind of world where you can go go um, off to bed and kind of go into your own intellectual world is very modern. We kind of take it for granted, but huh? Of course, but, there, were um, fewer, on, there were fewer people who were literate back then. Uh, oh yeah, so maybe that's one reason people were reading out loud. But um, so. This Kant thing, I, I do want to drill mm-hmm. down on uh, on this Kant thing because, for one thing, I, I definitely need somebody to explain him to me. He's not the most – I mean, you never know. You're reading him in translation when you read him. So the few times I've tried to read him, I haven't been reading him in his native tongue. Maybe that's part of the problem. But he's not, he's not known as the most accessible writer. Uh, you, you compare him to say David Hume, also writing the 18th mm-hmm. century, and you you there's a, I would say there's a difference in clarity. Uh, the the young David Hume was similarly unclear. The older David Hume was a great stylist. Oh, is that right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the that. treatise the treatise reads a lot like the critique, maybe better, if still, but. Um, Huh. Yeah, pretty much. So, so, pretty much every, everyone. Meaning, oh, should, we should say for non-insiders, a treatise on human nature. You're mm-hmm. saying reads as obscurely as a critique. Uh, wait, Close what, to a, a critique of human. Wait, what is the t- title of that Kant book? It's a critique of human reason. Is that no, it? Critique of critique of pure reason. Critique of pure reason. Okay. Which actually, pure does not play a big role in the book. Um. Which so it's kind of funny that it's in the title. Um, the the uh, yeah, I'll have to take your word for that. I definitely don't have a rejoinder. <laughs> the um, <laughs> so here's the, there's a couple of things in particular. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you the the concept. My interest in Kant is partly grounded in a misunderstanding on my part, and, and this mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Now. There is this idea of the 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 numinous or noumenal, right? That there is the phenomenal mm-hmm. world and the noumenal world. There are mm-hmm. phenomena and there are noumena. This is a, a distinction that Kant is famous for. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't bother to correct me in real time. I'll give you the chance to correct me. But but part of the idea, we can say at a minimum, at the risk of some understatement, probably that uh, the noumenal. Uh, world, noumenal things are, to put it mildly, less accessible to our perception than phenomenal. What we see is the phenomenal part of reality. And then there is said to be this noumenal part. Now, um, there's also, uh, there's a couple of other, okay, so first of all, Schopenhauer later puts the concept to some kind of use that, that we don't have to get into, but uh, it, it, we might. Um, but the, the 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 thing that I had been confused about is that. Do you know at all the work of Rudolf Otto? This book, the idea of the holy. No, he makes a big deal of what he calls the numinous. 
And Kant uses the term noumenus, right? As well as I'm assuming that this is a Christian. Yes, but it turns out, and I had thought, you know, because he says the noumenus, and he says like the primordial religious experience is is an encounter with the noumenus. It's this holy other thing, not ordinarily uh, Mm -hmm. apprehendable. And so I had thought, well, that kind of has something to do with Kant's idea of the noumenus, but it turns out that Rudolf Otto's numinous, and the further thing is that Kant, I, I think we'll, we'll try, we'll talk about this, but had a religious side that was not totally unrelated to his conception of the numinous, maybe, but we'll get into that. So all these things, to my mind, pointed to Otto having picked up on Kant. No, it turns out that Rudolf Otto's numinous is spelled N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S. They have nothing in common at least they do not have a common etymological root. One is of Latin origin, one is of Greek. And is it nominus? It's it's N U M I N O U S and and the etymology I think is huh. specifically grounded in the kind of divine this the the spiritual in a oh, way that Kant is not. Is it could be, could be could be. I I don't know, but I only recently found out it's a phonetic coincidence. Uh-huh. Which is just interesting because it could not be a coincidence, right? It could, it could be like this is the encounter with ultimate reality because you could describe Kant's numinous as ultimate. You could describe it as ultimate reality mm-hmm. without too much of a stretch, right? And Kant was religious and, and so on. So it's just a weird thing <laughs> that I only discovered like today <laughs> that, I, that, that Otto's numinous is the wrong numinous. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not. I, I wouldn't be satisfied on just that ground that he wasn't invoking Kant. Uh, he may well have been. Um, there's a tradition of understanding Kant in which that kind of uh, hmm. understanding of noumenal uh, would seem very Kantian, um, particularly um, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought for a second, but yeah, that, that could um, in the sort of two worlds interpretation of what Kant means by transcendental idealism. The noumenal is something apart from Mm -hmm. uh, this reality that we experience uh, in our own sort of empirical daily life. And, um, and it's also apart from what's conceived of in the sciences. So apart from nature in Mm -hmm. that sense, um, so it it can be it's on that interpretation it is its own kind of different reality sort of ex- right. existing parallel to our own um so that may well be an invocation of kant um the only thing in your little spiel where you started with that was incorrect uh was that you said the numinous is less accessible well, um, I said that's an understatement. It's wholly inaccessible according to Kant, right? Exactly, right. And, and, and on, that, on any interpretation, that's, okay. it's wholly that's inaccessible. Un, that, that's uh, uh, not controversial then uh, as a reading of Kant. Right. And and that would be one distinction between Kant and Otto because Otto is saying that it's possible to have this kind of breakthrough experience where mm-hmm. the divine, he would say, but also this thing he's calling the numinous Although wholly other from our ordinary experience is suddenly accessible to us, right? And Kant would say it's never accessible to you. 
It's never accessible to you. Maybe Kant could have had some kind of notion that it could be accessible to you, but it would have to be a non-rational experience. Um, you would need some kind of way to experience that did not involve the concepts and experiences that we have all the time in empirical life. But as far as I know, Kant never really entertains that uh, kind of possibility. He's not, he's much more, you know, uh, there was the time where Jesus was asked, um, what about people who get remarried at the end of, uh, you know, it was a pharisaical conversation. So when people go to heaven after they're, after they're dead and they were married to one person and then that person died in life and they remarried, then how did they all get along in heaven? And Jesus says something along the lines of, I care about what's here in this world now. Hmm. And, you know, uh, Kant, Kant is that kind of Christian. He's concerned about ethical life and uh, morality, and he doesn't spend a lot of time in sort of, um, he, he wouldn't approve of pining after the noumenal world. He it's, wouldn't. You, no. It's, well, uh, you is, have there, to... is there a religious connection for him? I mean, even, mm-hmm. is one even conjectured to, uh, uh, you know, a connection between kind of religion and this idea of this kind of unknowable aspect or realm of reality. Yeah. And what yeah. is it? Very complicated. Um, <laughs> well, should we, should we, should we back up then and talk a little about noumena and phenomena or what well, do you think is the uh, best way to me, proceed? Let me say a few words on religion and then back okay. up to phenomena and noumena. Um, he believed that there were three and then he kind of added a fourth in a later book, but I'll just focus on these three in the critique of pure reason, three ideas, which are different from concepts, which is God, freedom, and the soul. Um, and they're all unconditioned, which is um, they all in some way exist outside of the causal order. And particularly the idea of God is the highest good. He's, he's good without any condition or mm-hmm. any um, qualification, you might say. Um and he, the, it ends up playing a kind of important place in his ethics where you can't know whether God exists, but he's very concerned to demonstrate that it's rational to hope God exists. So uh, and famously in the Critique of Pure Reason, he calls his uh, project limiting reason to make room for faith. Um. Hmm. And he, and it's a, it's a subtle idea. My teacher, Eric Wilson, like to emphasize this. You might wonder why he cares so much about um, 
he, he's very concerned to argue that there is there could be a world in which the most moral thing, doing the most moral thing at all times, is also the happiest life. Mm-hmm. And you might think, well, that's an odd preoccupation. But to Kant, if that weren't coherent, then his whole notion of morality would not be coherent. Um, and for someone who conceives of ethical life as a kind of rational action, mm-hmm. that incoherence would be a serious philosophical problem. So God is um, unknowable, but having faith in him is important in order to be good. It's part of kind of moral uh, moral practice, if you like. Okay. For uh, yeah. So so um, okay. So and and then there's freedom in the soul. <laughs> oh God, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do. We should we go through those before we get back to the question of the connection between the numinous and uh, um, and Kant's religion. Go feel free. Basically, um, I won't get into it too much, but. Those are both the unconditioned. We can't know whether they exist or not. Mm -hmm. And for Kant, we can't know um, whether we ever acted freely and autonomously or not. Hmm. Because a free action and a, which is totally um, outside the causal order of nature, um, can always look exactly like some causal, um, so some causally determined action. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, we can't know ever if we have a soul. Um, we could just be minds sort of instantiated in bodies, you know, like modern computationalist things, mm-hmm. or our minds could be something uh, numinal (laughs) or that, um, that gets tricky. Um, Or there could be a numinal aspect of ourselves, but we'll, we'll kind of a hidden, a hidden aspect, right? Hidden Hidden, hidden from us. Yes. Um, Which, which most modern psychologists would say there is, at least in the sense of unconscious information processing. But that, but he, 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 he would have had a more profound. He, he, he was thinking metaphysically, not right. Exactly, like it's something that can endure outside the body. Right. So all three of those ideas, we can't know them. We can't know whether they exist, but uh, they have great sort of practical importance in living an ethical life. Okay. And so the new so the numinous has a a possible so are they all aspects of the are, are they all directly related to the numinous in the sense that they're not knowable in the sense that we can't see them or yes or what so so they or are have, we can they're outside the bounds of possible experience that's a common Kantian formula um so they they're outside of anything that we can uh, 
ever have any kind of empirical relation to. Mm-hmm. So it works well with his religious belief. I mean, it sounds like, so he's saying all three of these are, their, their existence is unknowable, God, yes. freedom, and the soul. So he's strictly speaking an agnostic. Yes. Um, but very religiously inclined. Yes, and pretty, I mean, I would call him a Christian. Um, a Christian I, agnostic. Oh, yeah, and even a Protestant, really. Um, but he he's non-Orthodox, but he's pretty Christian, and he was faithful. And um, his preoccupations are typical of his era, and he was um, like a lot of sort of Protestant-inclined intellectuals. He was concerned about enthusiasm, the kind of emotion-based um, kind of like our modern evangelicals where mm-hmm. they put a great, they, they think if you're not experiencing some deep emotion in service or in prayer or, uh, you know, in, in other religious practices, then you're not really getting down to um, a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to Kant and to a lot of people, that made um, religion in irrational and impulsive and um, untrustworthy kind of uh, practice. I'm not passing any judgments myself here, but uh, he was very concerned to oppose that kind of vision of religious life, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I guess it stands to reason, if he thinks there can be no direct connection, in a way, mm-hmm. to God, freedom, or the soul, in a certain sense, uh, th- mm-hmm. that he wouldn't imagine people being suddenly possessed by forces emanating from this realm. <laughs> from right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, uh, okay, so... So yeah, one way to 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 view this is as uh, the the numinous uh, is is working well with his religious beliefs, and then the other angle of approach is to locate it along the spectrum of ideas in, in that era about the way we apprehend reality, the way the mind apprehends reality. Um, mm-hmm. Now you said something in your conversation with Dan Kaufman that uh, I don't think I totally get, but I think must be related to this, which is that it was a question of the empiricists, I guess, had said that the mind conforms to the objects out there in mm-hmm. reality. They kind of make an impression on it or something, but, it, but, but, you know, it, it, it adapts to them. It is a response to them. And you're saying mm-hmm. Kant said that the, the objects actually conform to the mind, which I don't get. I mean, it, it it makes the objects sound like they're playing an active role, right, or something like right. like. Whereas I think of them as just kind of out there. I'm the active being. Right. Um, now, now if this doesn't have anything to do with the numinous, you can tell me now, and maybe we don't have to go down oh, this no. road. But I think it must. It has everything to do with the numinous. This so is, what is um, that? How can we make sense of this idea that when we uh, perceive things, it is the uh, it is the object, it is the thing we're perceiving that is conforming to 
my mind. Right. So this is what Kant calls uh, the Copernican revolution in philosophy. Right. Where he says basically um, the what we still think of, and actually sadly what some a lot of philosophers think out of as uh, perception is there's an object. It um, oh, let me not use this because I'm yeah. That object it. is recording your voice, <laughs> so maybe you shouldn't move it around wildly. Um, but uh, I'll use I'll use this one. Okay, uh, yeah, that seems uh, okay. So. Here's an object. Uh-huh. I'm. I can see it. Um, it is uh, white, rectangular, solid, flexible. Um, you know, it moves in such and such a way. Um, because it's out in the world in a white, rectangular, um, flexible way, then it it, it causally impacts me. And my receptive capacities as uh, both my eyes, but also more profoundly neurologically in right. some way uh, where it makes me represent this object as being uh, yeah. white, rectangular, flexible, yeah. et cetera. And, through, and through, through my uh, – the different modalities of sense aren't going to really matter. So I'm – Touching right. it, I can tell it's flexible by moving it. I can tell it's white by seeing it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If, okay. I, if I can, that's, that's the empiricist view and the conventional view, and one that makes immediate sense to me. And and then there is right. Kant's view, and then there is Kant's view, which is well, it's one of two things, but either one involves um, us giving in structure to the empirical world uh, in such a way that um, the way what we experience in the empirical world evinces an order that actually comes from our minds. Okay. Well, that's, that's getting to be more intelligible to me and in a way right. more in keeping with you know, a certain amount of uh, cognitive psychology even and, and study perception. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I, I said, here's this object. It has all these properties. Um, one of the things I said it was is rectangular. Rectangularity uh, is a spatial concept. Mm-hmm. And um, it's also here now. And if I look away and if I look back, it's still here now, mm-hmm. which means I'm also orienting it in time. Okay. And- wait, 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 wait. So, okay. <laughs> uh, so it's here. It's oriented in space. Uh-huh. It's here now and it's here later. That's what you mean by orienting in time. Mm-hmm. It's, in other words, it's those enduring. are statements. Those are statements you can make. To make a statement like that is to orient it in time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, I represent it as an object. That's a a lot of a lot of um, <laughs> psychology and psychologically minded uh, modern philosophy. Kind of makes me sad because they don't attend to 
Kant and Hegel's very important insights onto this. Um, it's not true of all of them, but of many. Um, why did I think that this rectangularity, this whiteness, this greenness over here, this flexibility, this solidness, these all these extremely complicated properties, mm-hmm. all this kind of rich sense data that I'm getting in, why did I think that this was one thing? Mm. Why did I connect it? And why didn't mm-hmm. I view it as, I, here's right. my hand on right. it, right. but it's not part of my body. There's the white wall behind it. It's distinct from right. that. Um, how, how did I do that? And one of the key insights of Kant that is that there's a kind of logical form to perceiving so one one thing is one way he would describe and I'm now at a point where anything I say is somewhat controversial because there are so many different ways of understanding Kant. Mm-hmm. But one way that I, I think Kant would think about this is when we take all those properties and we connect them into uh an experience of a thing, that's called um synthesizing a manifold of properties into an intuition. Mm-hmm. And so just... The intuition what, so, being that this is a unified thing. Yes. Uh-huh. or And particularly, it's the intuition is what's in my mind when I look at the book and say this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I perceive the whiteness, the greenness, the rectangularity, everything as part of the book, mm-hmm. right? So it's all unified. And so one one insight here is that unlike the uh, sort of naive empiricist view where there's an object, it's in a causal relation to me, and it causes the representation in my mind – Representing this is an active process, mm-hmm. which has a kind of, I, the linguistic idiom is going to be foreign to Kant, but has a kind of grammar, or as he would say, a kind of logic. Um, and it's it's a com- very complicated operation that we often don't notice as complicated right. because it's so basic to our kind of uh operation and we do it we do all of it so quickly Mm -hmm. Uh, but each one of these little perceptions is so rich and complex so if the empiricists say you know the objects are kind of out there and your mind is conforming to a given object then Kant would say well the very idea that it is an object is something you're actually projecting onto it and Important to say, naive empiricist. Naive empiricist would say that. Okay. Yeah. But 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 I but I characterize Kant's view accurately. I mean, it still seems to to say that the object. Okay, so I see what you mean. The objects are conforming to your mind. There, in other words, there may or may not be unity to this thing that you see unity in, and uh, mm-hmm. th- that's what we mean by saying the object conforms to your mind. I mean by e- even. Even its being an object is, in a way, catering to your mm-hmm. presupposition. Right. Uh, um, so, um, yeah. Go ahead. I was. I want to 
kind of break that down because there are two there are two aspects to how we inform uh, the world. And one is uh, what I've already alluded to, which he thinks is part of what at least sometimes he refers to as our passive kind of capacity, our perceptual capacity. And he thinks the forms of, uh, of our passive capacity, which he identifies with intuition, the forms of our receptivity are space and time. And then there's this active part of experience uh, which sort of takes up and organizes and um, works with the material provided by the receptive part of the mind. And the form of the active part of the mind is the the categories or the pure concepts of the understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Kant thinks those have to come from us, which he's picking up on an argument for David Hume, because partly because you know maybe you can see white you can see green you can see rectangular but how could you it's like this is a book i i can recognize it as a book because i've seen other books in the past and i empirically generated the concept book mm-hmm. right based on past experiences how could I do that with objecthood? Say that again. How could you do what with objecthood? How could I empirically generate the concept objecthood in the way I empirically generated the concept book? And, and Kant says you can't. You can't. It's they were they came in the box. Mm-hmm. Um, Basic concepts like property and relation, cause and effect, agent and patient, um, object and property uh, are part of the architecture of understanding. Okay. Let me, um, I want to throw something out. Are you very familiar with the Buddhist concept of emptiness? I'm pretty familiar with it. it. it it's yeah. not unrelated. Okay. So one way to put it is that things don't, have essence that that uh if you really pay close attention to per, your perceptions you are attributing essence to things you are you know you have this idea that uh i i mean uh, an example might be uh like if you were walk if you're walking the parking lot you're walking up to your car and you're about to put the key and you realize oh it's not your car it's somebody else's car you, you'd be like, whoa, I, I got to reorient here. And that would be because you had been attributing kind of essence of your car to that car. And then suddenly you're viewing this vehicle and no longer has essence of your car. It can actually be a powerful emotional experience. And I have, um, I mean, in, in, uh, in my book, Why Buddhism is True, I argued that really uh, fundamentally it's our affect that imparts essence to things and that if you, but anyway, and that, and that if you, and that if you talk to people who say Buddhists who say they've experienced emptiness and I, and I've talked to some and, and they tell me what it's like to view the world 
once you're experiencing emptiness, I say, and I think I think there's, there's good reason to. Yeah, I don't think I'm the first person to say this. Uh, that 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 affect is so centrally involved in the construction of essence, but. I think what they've done is through meditation and other things, they've really toned down their affective reaction to the world generally. Now, what they say is, they say, you say, well, what's it like? And they say, well, you can still tell uh, the difference between your computer and a light bulb, but they just don't project their identities so strongly. Now, now this isn't, I don't think this is Kantianism, but it's also not totally unrelated because they are saying that there's a, there's a part of our, almost the central thing that infuses things with a sense of form and discreteness, yeah. separation from the rest of the world is projected by us. They, right. they don't, they don't have those things in them. Right. So Kant's informing has nothing to do with affect. So that's right. that's a difference to well, know. Well, by the way, a lot of B- Buddhist philosophy does not have anything. The Buddhist philosophical justification for emptiness doesn't have anything to do uh, with affect. It has to do with in well, well, it, in it a way with the with seam, in a way with the seamlessness of causality and with seamlessness generally. That that would be. Well, I may, could be a little wrong about that, but that's the nature of the philosophical justification. My claim, though, is that when people say, oh, I've seen the truth of emptiness, it, it isn't really an intellectual apprehension so much as a change in, in the role of affect in their perception. So it's a different thing. The, the, the Buddhist philosophy of emptiness doesn't invoke affect. I just want to be well, clear. Right. So the the insight that you're supposed to have in Buddhism is – when you go to put your key in somebody else's car and then you say, it's not my car. Mm -hmm. And then you realize none of the cars are my cars. They're all just cars. Including yours, including your car, you mean? Right. Yeah. Okay. And then none of the cars are cars. None of the cars cars are cars. Innocent. None. There is no such thing as essence of car. Yeah. I was talking about essence of my car, but you're right. Then there is the idea of essence of car. Right. Yeah. Right. So um, there's actually an ambiguity within Buddhism, which could uh, get into the ambiguity in Kant, um, because there are, you know, one of the images of there's uh, the Buddha's like the lotus that grows up from beneath the water Mm -hmm. and then grows up through the water and then blossoms on the other side of the water, on top of the water. Mm-hmm. And the water is supposed to be the world in the metaphor. And the Buddha comes through the world, but transcends in some sense out of the world, right? Uh, I'm not that conversant in this particular. I mean, there's a okay. billion different Buddhist traditions and, and metaphors and stories, but uh, so I can't vouch for any one well, interpretation like, of this one. But yeah, I, I like that idea because it's nicely ambiguous. Um which uh, there's a metaphysically strong version of that, which is the more theological kind of view. Um, as a Peter Harvey in his book said, um, mm-hmm. if Jesus is God become man for many Buddhists, Buddha just takes the reverse itinerary. Um, so if you could view becoming enlightened as getting into this other realm 
which is this metaphysical plane, which is the air above the water, right? In the metaphor, it's a sort of different plane. Yeah. In fact, by the way, you use the word unconditioned earlier. It is the unconditioned in Buddhism. You have escaped the realm of causality. Right. Right. And and there's a, there's a kind of logic. There's kind of way that can make sense, but go ahead. Well, the, uh, the, the, the metaphysically strong version um, is that it's a separate realm that becoming enlightened gets you to. Mm-hmm. So you get out of the world and into the non-world, uh, the beyond world. Uh, and there's one time the Buddha said that the Dharma, which is Buddhism, is like a raft that gets you to the other shore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then you leave it behind once you get to the other side. So that's, I think, an image where that really implies that there, what's outside the world is this other realm that you can get to and then move around in. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the metaphysically uh, sort of deflated Buddhism, which is what you and Stephen Batchelor and people like that tend to profess, where it's not transcending reality isn't getting into some metaphysical out there. It's just seeing the limitedness of our seeing all of our kind of constructions of empirical reality as only constructions of empirical reality. That's that can be part of it. Uh, But um, I also think, I mean, I, I, I don't, uh, I mean, it depends on what you mean by metaphysical. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I do think, uh, there's a meaningful sense in which moving toward enlightenment is moving toward the unconditioned. I needn't get into it now. I mean, people can Google my piece on Nirvana that appeared in Aeon, which was a, an excerpt from my book, A-E-O-N is the magazine. But, um, uh, but anyway, no, I, I, I take your, I mean, what I would, what I think I would say, and Stephen Batchelor would say, I don't think we're saying exactly the same thing, but I think we're both saying we would leave out what we consider supernatural leave out what's right. religious in the sense of supernatural. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, we're, we're, we're uh, so yeah, that's, well, it's, you doesn't mean you're not, a... you're not in any meaningful sense transcending anything, but, but no, anyway. and indeed, indeed, yeah. that's, that's, and Kant's philosophy is a transcendental philosophy. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, it's called transcendental idealism is what his, this, positing of phenomena noumena uh that's what he ter- he terms it uh transcendental idealism and and, um, and is it easy to um say what those two words mean in that uh context it, is the the is the idealism the idea that well what is, is is that the idea that there is this other realm or other aspect beyond the real uh, no well, realm or aspect, right? Because yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that question. Right, we'll get into that question. But I mean, no, well, we're we've gotten into that question already because the the Buddhism, what I was talking about with the Buddhism, the two different concepts mm-hmm. of either you're just trying to realize that there's reality considered apart from everything we bring to it, mm-hmm. or there's a sort of transcendent other reality 
which sort of exists separately and maybe has its own structure. Um, and the question is, which of these did, did Kant mean? And there's a lot of ambiguity within the text and within uh, different interpretations. Uh, in the same way, there's an ambiguity within Buddhism. So, uh, so this is conventionally put as when he made the, the phenomena noumena distinction, was he talking about two worlds or two aspects, right? And right. is is it sounds like the two worlds, just to listen to the word, would be more deserving of the term transcendental. Uh, does that make sense? I mean, is that well? Maybe you should tell us why he called it transcendental idealism. What in transcendental in what sense? Right. Um, well, that's certainly the version of transcendental idealism that goes off and plays with a lot of different theologies and um you mean the two worlds the two worlds version is that's the one that was more picked up by theologians and... uh, usually yeah um or that's my perception i'm less knowledgeable about theology than uh okay makes sense and, and also there's an interpretation of hegel which we're not going to talk about which has is is kind of a, a different flavor of this kind of version of Kant, which has certainly been important to Christians um, and Christian philosophers and theologians. Um, but the um, what did you ask me just now? The, well, I, was, I was asking about drilling down on the meaning of the word transcendental. Right. I'd settle okay. for either drilling down into transcendental or idealism, actually. I mean, as to, as to why he called his philosophy transcendental idealism and whether that maps pretty directly onto this idea of, of noumenal phenomenal. Yes. And, and in fact, you could only really explain them both at once, the transcendental okay. and the idealism. So it's ideal insofar as it comes from our own minds. So the structure of the world that we see and experience has a structure that's mental, that's given to it by us, mm -hmm. which has a certain kind of resonance with the idealism of Berkeley or, um, excuse me, Berkeley. Um, uh, of course, uh, the kind of classic idealists were concerned to deny that there is really matter mm -hmm. is they wanted to dissolve the distinction between mind and world by get rid of, getting rid of world. Really. It's just everything yeah. is a, all the empirical objects uh, that we see are really thoughts in the mind of God. So, yeah. So we weren't, we weren't just, just projecting some really fundamental things onto a world out there. We were kind of dreaming up the world. Uh, yeah, okay. uh, yeah. Well, loose, the point is very loosely, is very loosely speaking. Every, everything is mind stuff. It's not mind stuff and matter stuff. It's only right. mind stuff. Right. Um, and Kant isn't saying that, but he is saying that the world is given this um, ideational form. That's the ideal part from us and from our operations, our mental operations, and that that transcends 
all of our possible experiences. There's nothing we can, there's no way we can relate to an external world except through space, time, and the categories. So everything, all of our experiences are spatiotemporal categorical. They all have this form given to them by pure reason. Hmm. And I guess I'm just thinking out loud, but uh, some Buddhists might say, well, actually, you can let go of the categorical. Right. Which is even if space and time stubbornly persist. Right. And like like I said, Kant's not a mystic kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to um, get on with it in this world. So he, he doesn't really – he's not interested in those possibilities. Yeah, I was kind of thinking Schopenhauer might be a uh, case of applying mm-hmm. some Kantian ideas to mysticism, but I'm not – I'm really not so sure. I, uh, oh, Schopenhauer, yeah. Schopenhauer you – think, you think he is. Oh, I mean um, Schopenhauer was uh, – Wilhelm Dilthey – Arthur Schopenhauer and um, Leopold von Ranke were part of a a back to Kant movement in the late 19th century, um, which is, here's the thing. The first critique, the first version of the first critique came out in 1781. Mm -hmm. Hegel had completed his, basically completed his system by I think 1821. So within that 40-year space, we get this massive system from Kant, and we get this massive system from Fichte and from Schelling, and then this massive system from Hegel. And for a long time, Hegel just dominated, and just so much happened so fast intellectually um, that they kind of a lot of European philosophy moved on to Hegel in some ways before they'd really digested Kant. Mm -hmm. So then there was a kind of a movement back to Kant. Um, Was Schopenhauer kind of a rival of Hegel's? Were they at the same university or something? They hated each other. Because because all the kids went to Hegel's lectures, right? And Schopenhauer was left twiddling his thumbs. So yeah, yeah, I'd I'd reject Hegel too if I were him. Totally. (laughs) It was standing room only in Hegel's classes. And he always scheduled his classes to be at the same time oh, man. to make his students choose. That's cold. <laughs> yeah. I hate well, people he, like that. Well, it, it, you know, it's the classic case of the vindictive one is the loser. <laughs> uh, well, because yeah. Wait, wait, who, who intentionally scheduled his classes to conflict with the Schopenhauer was the really resentful one. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. What, well, he was, I don't know what Hegel's attitude. Yeah. I don't know what Hegel's attitude to Schopenhauer was, if he had one. Um, so, so naturally Schopenhauer leads it back to Kant movement and away and away from Hegel movement. Yes. Right. So, uh, but it was a larger movement, um, kind of in, in, in that moment to the 19th century um, where Hegel's domination started to slip a little bit. Um, although Hegel really remains the dominant figure um, for 19th century European philosophy. Um, and Is he harder I, to understand than, than Kant? Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know the old the old joke. Have you, the old joke. Have you read Hegel? Not personally. Yeah, right. No, that's. Um, I I I always joke that it took reading Hegel to appreciate, for me to appreciate what Kant does right. 
mm-hmm. in his writing. Um, and I, I know someone who will be nameless uh, who was well on the way to being a Hegel scholar and spent three days reading Hegel and understood nothing and said, forget it and became a Kant scholar. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I, I don't get, I don't get why Hegel ever caught on from what limited understanding I have of him, but oh, well, know, I do, but uh, what, what, what was the key to a good branding? What was it? <laughs> no, there, there is some powerful philosophy there, but it's very, very difficult. Okay. Um, so anyway, so let's see, where were we? Um, so, well, I was, I said something about what trans, what transcendental means and what idealism means. So does that, particularly I'm thinking about the transcendent part because it's not transcending as in getting out of, it's kind of the opposite, right? It's, it transcends the spatio-temporal categorical form of pure reason transcends all of our experiences. It's, it informs everything, all experience we can have. Okay. It is just, uh, it is just presupposed by us in a way that leaves us incapable of understanding what reality would seem like if it weren't presupposed by us. Yes. And, um, Sort of like, you know, it's a lens through which we view. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, and, I'll buy that. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I guess, and, and Kant was the first to, I mean, you, you hear particularly the idea of space and time as, as a priori categories. He, he, he gets credit for that, oh, right? Yeah. The idea yeah, that they true. are, that they are special. We bring them to everything. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Well, particularly the idea that they come from us. Yeah. Because for Newton, which is one of the pr- people Kant is concerned to argue with, and for Leibniz in a different way, uh, space is something that exists independently of us. For mm-hmm. Newton, it's a big sort of empty, organized container which all of matter sort of exists within Mm -hmm. and for Leibniz it's a um it's it's a kind of a Leibniz's view is obscure but it's a kind of system of relations between things that exist um Mm -hmm. but in either case it's something that exists sort of between or transcending stuff out there but for Kant it comes from us mm-hmm. and is um, given to the world insofar as we experience the world that way and um, so one thing to maybe make worth noting is Kant thinks space and time are kind of the human modes of uh, experiencing the world. He doesn't think think, my dog thinks in terms of space and time. I don't know if he ever addressed animal cognition in that way, but um, he might say, we don't know. That's kind of, and there's also, there's, I think he runs into trouble there about the publicity of space and time. So how do I know that you organize your world in spatio-temporal ways? Mm. And, um, 
or you mean the same things by space and time mm-hmm. that I mean by space and time. But that's a different topic, I guess. But he thinks that the categories are uh, exist for all finite knowers, which um, moves us, I think, forward towards understanding the phenomenal and noumenal distinction. So, so finite any, knowers means everyone except for God, basically, or what? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And God, the the infinite knower, knows by creating. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've been toying with this formulation, and I'm not sure what I think of it yet, but it's sort of like the object itself. Well, okay, so the infinite knower helps us to understand The contrast, right, between transcendental and or transcendental idealism and some other at least notional experience, um, which that's the only kind of experience there could be, which is not transcendentally ideal. There could be different, uh, different finite knowers could have different transcendental transcendentally ideal experience because they could have different forms of intuition, but they would also have to have the same categorical uh, structure and any finite creature would have to be um, idealizing experience in some way. Okay. So uh, let me, let me ask you this. I mean, if you asked uh, Kant, well, what is this reality? Well, well, you know, we haven't, I mean, quickly we can say that, well, I guess you said there is controversy between whether he meant you should think of the noumenal and phenomenal as two completely different realms mm-hmm. or two aspects. Maybe you should spend a minute helping me better understand what the difference would be between right. those two. The, 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 so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I probably fall in when I'm just talking. I probably fall into a two aspect kind of idiom mm-hmm. um, because I mean partly because I think that's the better interpretation of Kant. Although I think there is real ambiguity in the text, and there's a reason why he's borne these different interpretations for hundreds of years. Um, <clears throat> But I also think it's the more philosophically uh, interesting and credible kind of side of of uh, philosophically viable kind of version of Kant. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty clear, I think, what the noumenal means on the two aspect view. It's we're bringing this uh, whole elaborate form, which involves space, time, and things like object and property and cause and effect and um, agent and patient and all these different basic concepts. And we're sort of putting it on, putting that structure into the world. And then to get back to objects conforming to us and us conforming to objects, it's sort of the interaction between the world and this 
this way apparatus of, of interpretation. Yeah, very good. This apparatus of interpretation that we sort of bring to it, our empirical world is the intersection of those two things. Uh-huh. So we can conceive of reality before we structure it that or reality as that thing which is out there uh, and which um, well here back to the book Uh when I experience um, this book for Kant I am bringing the uh, the basic concept of object I'm bringing the basic concept of property and I'm bringing the whole attendant grammar that goes with that. And I'm bringing space and time. And so rectangularity is something that's derived from space. And the fact that I'm, I can see it across time now and also now the same book um, is an interaction of objecthood and time, right? Because I'm seeing it's, you know, it is this book, not Mm -hmm. a book, but this book. Mm -hmm. And it's still this book at a later time. And I'm bringing all of that with me and sort of putting it into what I see and experience. But I don't determine that this book is right here, right? The world does. What do you mean? Well, you mean because that's where you found the book or you mean? Meaning whatever I see is going to be spatio-temporal, is going to be categorical, uh-huh. but I don't, I don't you, determine You don't get that... to decide. So, so yeah. So I'm the one who decides in a sense. My mind insists that the tree in my front yard is oriented in space and time, but I don't get to move the tree. Right. Okay. It, so the fact that you experience a tree and not some other spatiotemporal categorical thing mm-hmm. is the contribution that the world makes. Right. And we can never conceive of reality except for that contribution that the world makes to our knowledge. We can never conceive of reality except, say the rest of that again? As that external reality which makes a contribution to our knowledge. Okay. But but we make more contributions to it than is commonly realized, according to Kant. Right, right. Um, so what... Why I chided you about naive empiricist. Right. Kant is, in certain sense, an empiricist. Um, we can, there are many meanings that can be given to that word, yeah. but experience is still very important um, to his worldview. Well, yeah, empiricism, it's, and this is something that I think I came to appreciate through a conversation with Dan Kaufman uh, that also was on the, uh, was on Meaning of Life TV. Um, you know, that, that empiricist, taken to a certain point, wind up being uh, very uncertain that there's anything out there. I mean, right. strictly speaking, all they have to, all we have to, all we can say for sure is that like there, there's something impinging on my eyeball that leads to the right. following conclusion about reality. 
or, or things they like end that. Up, they, yeah. they can end up very close to an idealist position, which is what happened to a lot of the 20th century um, uh, empiricists. Right, right. The, so there's less distance between a, like a British empiricist and a Barclay than mm-hmm. you might think. Yes, definitely. Uh, uh, so let me ask you this. So if, if, um, if I ask Kant, well, try to describe uh the noumenal to me he'd go don't you're you're missing the point my whole point yes <laughs> is again but and, and, and he and he would probably have trouble coming up with a metaphor but but um i think the modern world makes it e- easier to at least come up with a metaphor that of something that is kind of wholly other than what we're seeing and mm-hmm. yet is responsible for it and that is if we if we if we think about some kind of simulation hypothesis or something and the idea of computer code right mm-hmm. like uh and um uh, is that is that worth is that worth thinking about at all with respect to uh, because that would be i mean would that be a kantian uh i'm just trying to trying to think like um like if really what's going on right now is that there's just a bunch of computer code, you know, like in the like in the Matrix, I guess, uh, yeah. generating what I'm seeing, um, would that be? Ah, that doesn't map very closely onto what he's talking about in a way, does it? Well, it, it could maybe if we take it more in a two worlds direction. So the 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 thing about the Matrix is that you can get out of it, right? Yeah. It's it's just uh, sort of simulated reality, but then you can move out of it into real reality. Um, then there's the uh, the total recall question of how do you ever know that you really got out? But um, uh, but that's a different question. So uh, if if we Of course, with the Matrix reality, well, never mind. Go ahead. Yeah, if that would be sort of, um, we can't get out of what we experience while remaining finite. But maybe there's a whole other realm that's available to God that is something which is exists apart from the world that we see. Uh-huh. And um, you can see very easily how that could have great theological importance. Um, maybe the, the noumenal isn't just sort of this abstracting away from the uh, empirical reality that we experience that we I went through in the two putting forward the two aspect view, maybe it's also somewhere you can go to right, in some mm-hmm. sense or mm-hmm. it's a whole. But the the thing that becomes incredibly difficult when you try to characterize the noumenal as a set kind of independent uh, reality yeah. Yeah. is. You can't categorize it. Um, categorize it, right? You can't conceive of it through the categories because whatever it is, 
it can't be it, it transcends the categories uh, uh, that's well, a kind of a different it's it's beyond, it's beyond it's beyond our categories right it's not conceivable through um the basic architecture of object and property and cause and effect and relation and all of that stuff can't get a grip on it, but it's something and it's out there and it's some way somehow that's kind of the two worlds view. And um, the, the question I wish Kant would have thought about was, should we think of whatever God is doing the way God cognitively relates to the world as cognition. Um, hmm. Or because hmm. it's so different from anything we do, but um, maybe yeah. there's a kind of way of relating to the world that God's capable of that is more directly related to the way the world is independently of any way that we think about it. Yeah. Now, let me ask you a God-related question. So mm -hmm. when I was thinking that Rudolf Otto, and, and, and your view is we don't know for sure whether Rudolf Otto was or was not uh, taking his cues from, from Kant, uh, even though ostensibly his numinous has a different etymology from Kant's. But the, um, my view is I, I didn't know who Rudolf Otto was until you yeah, started. Yeah, it's a pretty famous book. The idea, <laughs> the idea of the holy. He was a German uh, theologian, I think, around the turn of the you know the nineteenth to the twentieth century, uh, mm -hmm. and he had observed religious experience. Uh, well, for one thing, I think he had observed it in cultures, you know, pre, kind of what he would have called pre-modern, pre or somebody would have called, you know, so. Uh, I, I think he spent some time talking about what would have been called primitive religious experience. It involved awe. It involved fear. It was an encounter with something wholly other. Mm -hmm. And when he saw what he called numinous in the thing that was being contacted, I took it to mean that the numinous is the divine. In that scenario, mm -hmm. but what what I'm hearing you say, and I don't, and I I take you to be representing Kant here, is more like not that God is the numinous, but that God would be able to see the numinous, whereas finite creatures inherently cannot. But he's also part of the. Numinous. He, he's also part of it. Yeah, uh, he is numinal himself, uh, positing any god. He, he's so in that sense, Kant is traditional. And seeing God is outside space-time nature, um, and um, but there's also the noumenal world, which is some kind of uh, mm -hmm. reality which exists for God as the infinite cognizer. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the? I assume there's a pretty close connection of the numinous to this notion of the thing in itself, the ding and sock yeah. or whatever, however you pronounce it. Ding on Zeke. Ding, ding, ding on Zeke. And is that, does that also come from Kant, the idea of the thing in itself, as opposed to the thing what? you're perceiving? And, and so the thing in itself, the phenomenal? It, it would be the noumenal aspect of the phenomenal. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Y yes. On, on, on a two aspects view, right? So, right. Um, so, 
the phenomenal is things as they appear to us, and the noumenal is things as they are in themselves. It's as simple as that. It's they're uh-huh. pretty pretty much interchangeable. But you can't be seduced into thinking that there are differentiated noumenal things which are identical to empirical apparent things, right? The idea that like for this book or for your tree, there's a noumenal book or a noumenal tree. It's not like a one-to-one correspondence because presumably the noumenal is not that discrete. Yes, right. You you can't that to posit uh, a token identity relationship and a one to one identity between noumenal and um, uh, phenomenal things is to project the concept of object beyond possible experience into the noumenal realm, and that's always for Kant a mistake. Mm-hmm. And I I think you can see him kind of struggling. Because there's a part of the book called just on the distinction between phenomena and noumena that he rewrote substantially in the two editions. And I think he kind of seed that saw that better in the second edition and changed some of the language. Um, so, uh, okay. yeah, so the, that it can't be an identity relationship between phenomena and noumena. But it right. can be a but somehow it's got to be the, the noumenal has a role to play, right? I mean, there is, you know, I, I mentioned the idea of emptiness in Buddhism, but but a mystical and a, a kind of Eastern idea that is related to that, but not exactly the same thing, is just the idea that uh, our perception of reality is to some extent a function of of our language, in in a sense, I I, I mean, you know, we, we 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 are imposing. I mean, the idea that we're imposing categories on on things is is kind of mystical, right? I, I mean, you already said mm-hmm. certain people took it in that direction, but they, in a way, they didn't have to. That that notion preceded them in the history of of mystical philosophies, right? Yeah, but the 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 big difference is for Kant, it's not a mistake. It's just the way we do things, but. It's the way we do things. So, but wouldn't he, he say he would not say? I mean, he would not say ultimate reality is in some sense truer, or he would say it's more ultimate, right? <laughs> I mean, look, if he's religious uh, and he's associating the noumenal with God, he has to say it's in some sense superior. <laughs> well, that's and that's why I think I think that in his engagement with Hume and kind of traditional theoretical philosophy, that's most of where you get the two aspect stuff. And then God kind of forces him into more of a two worlds kind of understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why the text has borne these different interpretations. Um, but it depends. Um, one view you can take out of Kant which I think is a more sort of resolutely empiricist view is the idea that if there's, if we meet another, like a race of aliens who um, organize experience in a non-spatio-temporal way and like kind of arrival was partly about this um, Hmm. was, you know, or, 
you know, they have fundamentally different ways of... What was the thing, remind us, what was the thing about the alien language in that movie? Like, what was fundamentally different about the way they communicated? They did. It was like, it it wasn't... Well, I'm trying to remember. It was kind of like smoke signals, but not exactly. What was it? They didn't experience time as linear. Oh, okay, right, right. Because they just... Right, the, right, what, right. the way what they brought to the world and the way they conceptualized things was so different that they didn't experience things as then and now and before and after it right. was all kind of um, so but it, we could meet another creature maybe who doesn't conceive of the world in space time maybe they they conceive of it as uh, Zeus Zyme, you know, something uh-huh. completely different, but are there modes of receptivity? And if you want to ask if reality is more spatiotemporal or more zeus-zemporal, that's just a confused question. Yeah, well, I mean, here's a, let me just interject this. I mean, Einstein, I believe insisted that we think of time as more on par with with spatial dimensions than had been the custom and uh you don't you know i mean this the idea of a space-time continuum is just mm-hmm. plug time in as another dimension right it's like mm-hmm. just see it as another dimension and and you know also einstein his notion of time i believe you know i think he's a determinist which means that the future, in a sense, already exists, in the sense that whatever it's going to be from our point of view, is, is, is there's no changing it. And, and, and another way, so, so we are creatures who view uh, the three dimensions of space as kind of, well, fixed in time, and they're the things we can survey right now, and then time is the dimension we have to move through one increment at a time. We don't have the option of looking forward in time. But Einstein's view suggests that maybe that could be an arbitrary feature of our species. And you can imagine a species that mm-hmm. when they say, uh, what lies ahead, they can tell you right away. But but when they say, well, yeah. what lies to the north, they, they say, well, you got to wait and find out. I mean, the north, north just comes one increment at a time, right? Right. You, you can so, imagine a reorientation that radical, and Kant could imagine that. Is that right? Yeah. Um, in I mean, orientation, did, I'm not saying he did, but... You could imagine an orientation that is that radically different from our orientation to reality? Uh-huh. More so. Even more radically different. Because that's yeah. still a temporal relationship. Right. So we're we're presupposing the same space and time concepts sure. or forms of intuition, but just imagining imagining a different orientation toward them. Uh huh. Um, for Kant to imagine a different kind of creature would be to imagine that they just have a totally different and perhaps inconceivable to us kind of orientation, or at least if that, we could that doesn't involve in, space and time. That doesn't involve space or time, but involves some other kind of organization, which would be completely foreign to us and unprecedented in our experience. Mm-hmm. So, okay, 
Well, you know, we've been uh, going at this for about an hour and 20 minutes. And as you uh, predicted before we started recording, it would get darker and darker where you are, (laughs) as is indeed happening. Um, So is there any, before we sign off, is there any kind of summary thing you want to uh, you want to say i'm glad i'm glad to hear that there there could turn out to be a kant rudolph auto connection <laughs> i mean one run re- one reason the numinous interests me is because of the because of the connection um yeah. to religion one of several reasons but uh, is there anything you want to say about any yeah. of this the the kind of closing thought I was kind of building to this when talking about space time, space time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's if you're asking whether our our way of experiencing things is more related to the reality than the aliens, you're kind of involved in a confusion. Right. And if you have a two aspect view, you're not you don't feel trapped by space time in the categories. It's just you needed some way to organize it. This is the way we organize it. Mm-hmm. This is as real as it's ever going to get. But if you think that there's something outside and that maybe we want to have some relationship to it. if In other words, or, this is the two world scenario. Yeah. You need a two worlds reading if you're going to have something that you kind of regret not being able to experience. Mm-hmm. And so Ray Langton in a book I didn't like very much, but she makes a very basic point that the two aspect view can't be all there is because, um, well, she didn't actually put it in those terms, but Kant thinks there's something we don't get because of our way of experiencing the world and that it's a real shame that we don't get it. Mm -hmm. So, that kind of pushes you into a more two worlds interpretation. So the people, the theologians and the people who would like, at least in principle, to get something outside of our experience or transcend experience in that way, they're going to be need to pick up a kind of two worlds con. Although the transcendence is ultimately impossible. According to Kant. According to Kant, it's it's theoretically possible. I mean, there's true transcendence is at least theoretically possible, but practically impossible in 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 Kant's two worlds universe. Well, Um, you'd need some capacity other than reason. uh But maybe there's it's so if you experience the noumenal, it can't be through concepts or through. Um, empirical experience, but maybe there's some capacity of the soul which can well, have is, a very different. That seems Eastern. The idea that uh, I mean, not just that you wouldn't do it through concepts; that concepts are an obstacle. Um, right. Yeah. Is, is is okay. Well, this is a lot to think about. Yeah. Very ineffable, very... ineffable, but veridical, right? Yeah, well, this is William James's. Uh, well, his definition of mystical experience is noetic. But ineffable. It imparts knowledge, but you can't describe the knowledge. But yeah, the same. Uh, yeah, uh, in, you can't you can't describe it in language, but it's true. Mm-hmm. That that's what I'm looking for. I will let you know. <laughs> I will let you know. Yeah, let me know if you find it. Yeah, and if you and if you happen upon it, you know who to call. Yeah, uh, I, I don't. I don't hold out great hope. Okay, well, thank you. The, the contrast between us has become quite stark. You are almost completely dark, and I seem that much uh, that much more illuminated. 
by virtue of that. Um, so where is there a place people can find your stuff in particular? Do you have a, a Twitter handle or anything you want to talk about? Just David Otlinger at David Otlinger. O-T-T-L-I-N-G-E-R. It's one word, David Otlinger on your Twitter handle. Yep. And okay. um, I occasionally submit something to Arc Digital. I hope I still do. Uh, <laughs> so maybe check out there. Anyway, it's a good place. So lots yeah. of interesting stuff for people who are interested. In and there is some thing. of your stuff on the archives of Electric Agora, probably. Yep. And I'll probably show up. And there will be stuff at, there. Yeah. And I'll I, probably do convos with Dan at some point. Yeah, so. yeah, that's a that's a recommended destination site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, David. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, me too.